Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. To all of you today, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And especially to all of our dads. Uh, we want to say happy Father's Day to you, whether your children are here with you in the building or there in the living room or maybe scattered throughout the country or throughout the nations, or maybe your children may even be in heaven for that matter. But to all of our dads, we want to say to all of you, happy Father's Day. So we can just officially give the Lord a hand clap of praise with a word of thanks. Men, we thank God for you. As Brother Chris said a moment ago, the way you love and lead your families, and we are honored that you are here with us today. If you have your Bibles today, I wanna ask you to take them and open them with me to Philippians chapter three for this morning's message and for our time together today. Philippians chapter three. As we open there, I do wanna thank you for continuing to be flexible during this unique time of life and ministry. I was reminded of how uh, challenging some of those changes can be this morning when someone who notoriously sits on the back row was, was escorted by an usher all the way to the front row for the early service a little while ago, and they didn't complain. In fact, they commented like, you know, the view is very different from the front row to the back. But in all the flexibilities that you're practicing, I just wanna thank you for the grace that you're walking in and commend you for it as well. You know, this is an unusual time in our life and of course in the context of our history, but I do wanna remind you this morning there is joy in Jesus. Even in the midst of a pandemic and even in the midst of a cultural crisis and divide, even in the midst of living in this broken, fallen world, the fact is there is joy for the journey because of Jesus. My question for each of us to consider this morning, and I really want you to think about it for a moment, is simply this. In your life today, as you live right here, June 21st, 2020, what is it that you are looking forward to? What is it that you're looking forward to and even living for right now? Like, what is it that you're focused on? Perhaps you would be like many and you would say, man, like, I'm just looking forward to getting beyond this pandemic and life getting back to normal. Is it ever gonna happen? Like, that's what I'm looking forward to. And that's what I'm hoping for. And that's what I'm living for. I just want life to get back to normal. Some might say, you know what, I'm tired of staying at home. Like I'm ready to get out and about. I I'm looking forward to vacation. Like if, if I could just get a week or two away, like I'd be good. That's what I'm looking forward to. And frankly, there are some of us right now that are sitting there and you're thinking like, man, I'm just about now realizing it's almost lunchtime and I'm really looking forward to lunch, right? And some of us would just be honest and say, you know, pastor, I haven't even thought ahead. Like my life's been so chaotic. I'm just thankful to be sitting down present in the moment. I don't know what I'm looking forward to. Well, I wanna challenge us all this morning in our time together to look forward. Beyond this moment, beyond lunch, beyond the rest of this day, beyond the rest of this month, even beyond this season or even this year, however long God gives us, I wanna challenge us this morning in the time we have together to look beyond this temporary life here on this earth and look to the life that God is calling us to in eternity. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. Now, I am hopeful that God allows me to live a long life. I would love nothing more than to be 100 years old, see my grandchildren, hopefully, and my grandchildren's children, and see them loving the Lord and walking with the Lord. And I hope one day, maybe on my 100th birthday, that I preach my final message, and as soon as I say amen, God says, come on, son. Like, that would be awesome, right? Here's the reality. The reality is the Bible says life is like a vapor. It appears for a moment and then vanishes away. We don't know how long we have here on this earth. We live like we have forever, but the reality is, is that the Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that literally God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. In other words, there's something that God has done within the heart of all mankind that helps us to know this world is not it. Our permanent existence and dwelling place is not here. There is an eternity. 
And that eternity will be spent in either heaven or hell. Both are real places. Both are prepared places. And what we do with Jesus Christ will determine whether we spend that eternity in, the, with heaven, in heaven with the Lord or an eternity in hell separated from the Lord. So I want to challenge us today to think, looking beyond the moment to eternity, to the things that really matter. And then I want to ask you to consider this. Are you living your life today for things that matter in eternity. Much of what we allow to consume our mind and our thoughts, our efforts and our energies, frankly are things that do not matter a great deal in eternity. I'm reminded of the illustration, which is not theologically correct, by the way, but it proves the point that, that there was a man one day who had uh, amounted great wealth throughout his life. He had lived his life to have wealth and to have influence and to have power and, and to be a leader, and sure enough, he was, but the time came that he was ill and he was preparing to die. And the Lord came to get him, and the Lord came to let him know that, that your time is at hand, and, and today you are going to be in heaven. And so he asked the Lord, Lord, that sounds great, but I've had a great successful life, and I've given my life to business, and I've done really well with finances. Would you let me just take one thing with me to heaven? The Lord said, oh, of course not, but he continued to beg. Lord, just let me take one thing. So sure enough, the Lord finally said, all right, tell you what, go ahead, you can take one thing. So he grabbed a duffel bag from underneath his bed. He went to his safe, he opened the safe, and he found bar after bar after bar of gold that, that represented all of his wealth. He put those bars in that bag, he put it over his shoulders, and off he went with the Lord into heaven. He approached heaven, and as he did, there was an angel that met him there at the gate, and the angel said, what in the world is on your shoulder? He said, oh, I brought a bag from home. He said, well, you can't take that in here. He said, well, the Lord said I could. And he said, fine. So the angel took the bag and said, well, let me see what's in it. He opened that bag and he saw all those gold bars, which the angel started laughing. He looked over at his buddy and said, more pavement, more pavement. <laughs> well, the Bible says that heaven has streets made of gold. See, the point is, is what this guy had lived for, what he was focused on, what he was pursued, his wealth and his ambition and his gold and all these different things. It really wasn't worth anything in heaven. My point is this morning is that God is calling us to look beyond the things that we value in the moment to value eternity and to value what God has offered us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. This morning, I want you to see from Philippians chapter three in this joy for the journey where Paul found joy. Now we've seen Paul finding joy in several things in the context of his relationship with the Lord. But today we come to verses 17 to 21 of Philippians three, and I want to preach to you on the subject, joy in heaven. Joy in heaven. Listen to what the Bible says as we stand to God's word, stand to our feet for the reading of God's word, recognizing that God's word is authoritative. It's his, not man's. Listen to what God says in Philippians 3. God speaks through Paul and says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The key statement of the entire text is right here in verse 20. For our citizenship is in where? Heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Key phrase, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this moment in time that you've given us the opportunity to hear your word. God, we've opened our Bibles. We've opened the apps on our phone. But I pray more importantly, that we'd open our hearts and our minds to you. Through the Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now to convict us, to comfort us, and to change us, we pray for the name and glory of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. you may be seated this morning. Joy in heaven. Verse 20 tells us a very interesting statement and it's telling it in reference to those who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Paul makes this statement, for we, for us, our citizenship is in heaven. 
This little phrase in verse 20 is frankly the phrase from which is the hinge that opens the door to the rest of this text. Everything that we read in verses 17, 18, and 19, and everything that we read following this phrase, if you will, completely hinges upon this reality that heaven is the home for all who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, we understand what a citizen is. A citizen is a person who legally belongs to a country and has the rights and protection of that country. I am America. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. My parents moved to Montgomery, Alabama when I was a year old, and there I was raised. I lived there until I went to Lynchburg, Virginia to go to Liberty University. I moved to Christiansburg, Virginia, where I pastored for 13 years, and God brought us here four years ago of this weekend. I'm thankful that I am a U.S. citizen. But the fact of the matter is I love going to other countries. I love going to, at times, for leisure and for, for, for traveling with Heather, but, but oftentimes for ministry and for missions opportunities to go and train pastors and to go and build relationships and go and consider God's calling in that context to, 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 to reach the world for Jesus. And so I love those moments. I love new experiences. I love learning new customs. I thoroughly enjoy eating new foods, right? These are wonderful things to experience. And even though the Lord's given me many opportunities to go to other countries, the fact is I'm a citizen of the U.S. And so as I go to these other countries, while they're wonderful, and I've, God has blessed me with so many incredibly uh, humbling opportunities, just about every time I go overseas, something happens by about day four or day five. Something about the excitement and the newness of that moment by day four or day five, I begin to get a little homesick. I, I begin to to think even more about Heather. And I began to think about my children and I began to think about the comforts of my bed. I began to think about like the unlimited time of a hot shower that you can get at home. I began to think about the comfort foods at home and there's something about it. I mean, not even a weekend, there's a longing in my heart in those moments for home. Then, of course, the time will come, as God has allowed, I'll fly back to America. I go through an airport. I begin to go through customs and somewhere along the way, there will be a sign that says, welcome home. Now, here's the reality. The reality is this morning is that God says, for all who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that this world is not our home. I don't know about you this morning, but that is a great encouragement to me. When I look at the world around me and I see the brokenness of the world around me and see the challenges and I see all the conflict and all the division and all the chaos and all the ways that the enemy is working to destroy and to divide and to conquer, I look at this world and while I have a calling to shine a light for Jesus Christ in this world, I also look beyond this world and realize, guess what? This world's not my home. Heaven is. The fact the Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven, which means for the believer, we have a dual citizenship. We live here on this earth. We live in this fallen world, but ultimately our permanent residency, our eternal home is in heaven. The wonderful truth this morning is, is that it does not matter what nation you were born into. It doesn't matter where your citizenship lies. Here's the reality. Because of God's grace and God's mercy and because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all the world, regardless of your race, regardless of your background, regardless of your country of origin, Jesus died for you. He made a way for you to be saved. And the very moment you call upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you're forgiven and you're cleansed. You're adopted into the family of God and you become a citizen of heaven. That's a wonderful truth. What a joy it is to know that I can get on a plane and go to Ukraine or go to Nicaragua or go to China or go to Argentina or go to Australia and preach and say, by God's grace alone and by the gift and mercy of Jesus' death on the cross, you can be saved and we can be brothers and sisters. We can be heaven citizens, if you will, by faith in Christ, no matter your background. God is wanting us to see in this moment is, is that we have a dual citizenship. We live here on this earth, but we have a hauling to know that our home is in heaven. Here's my question. Are you looking forward to that home? Are you looking forward to heaven? And if so, are you living like it? See, I think what God is wanting us to see from Philippians chapter three, Paul is bringing this, this reality that heaven is our home. Our citizenship is here. This world is not our home. We're just passing through it. And that reality... Our future home should determine and dictate how we live in our earthly home. In other words, our heavenly home should make us better citizens on earth. 
It should bring us a place where literally because of our love for God and our relationship with God and our future calling to be with the Lord for all of eternity, it should impact the way we live our lives today, which is Paul's point in Philippians 3. I want you to make with me this morning two key points about this reality of heaven and the joy that it brings to our life. See, Paul is writing from a place of Roman imprisonment. He doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive. He doesn't know what's around the corner. His freedoms are limited. He's literally chained to a guard. He doesn't know where this is going. But he still had joy. He had joy because he knew this. No matter how bad it got on this earth, nothing could compare to what God had in store in his heavenly home. He knew that no matter what he faced here in this world, it was only temporary and it would only further usher him into his eternal home in heaven with the Lord. And that reality brought him joy. And that reality determined how he lived his life in the present. When you and I today have a clear vision and glimpse for where God is taking us to in our home in heaven, it will impact and influence how we live today. So I want to see two things from Philippians chapter three. Number one, Our heavenly citizenship should influence how we walk. Our heavenly citizenship should influence how we walk. Paul says it this way in verse 17. He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. One of Paul's favorite illustrations is this term of walking. He uses this term not to refer to your stance and how you walk or whether you have a limp or not or whatever else. He's referring to our lifestyle, our conduct, how we live our life today. Whether we realize it or not, our citizenship, our background, our country of residence in many ways impacts how we live in many different ways. I've been blessed to go to many countries in the context of ministry, and I am so blessed that just about every time I've gone, there's been someone there in that host country who's come alongside of me and has said, pastor, just stick with me. Follow my example, do what I do. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm in a new area. This is not my home. And I begin to realize in those moments that people don't do things in other countries the same way we do in America. I remember the very first time I was a college student, I went to England where I was serving on a ministry trip uh, during my Christmas break. And I remember the first time realizing not everybody drives on the correct side of the road. Right? I remember going to an island called Dominica, not the Dominican Republic, but Dominica for the very first time. And it was there that I realized that in Dominica, all the residents, this is a gift from God, from 1 to 2 p.m., take a siesta. Close businesses and everything, it is siesta time. Like, come on, America, surely we can improve. And, and co- That's a church policy from this day forward, all right? Hallelujah. Don't call me, but I'm kidding, right? But I learned those things. I've been to other countries where I've learned, and some people do this in America, of course, too, but I've learned that when you enter the door, you take your shoes off immediately. I've learned in other cultures where I walk in and there's a kind of a polite bow as a greeting. I've been in a culture where I've sat down with someone and they've said, pastor, don't clean your plate too quickly. What they're saying is if you do, they just keep bringing it like, They're going to stuff your face until you kind of tap out, you know, like take your time. A lot of different things. When Paul says, listen, I want you to consider your your walk, he's describing your ways. He's describing how you live. He's describing your conduct. And he points out the fact there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. Now, what does the right way to live mean in the context of our citizenship in heaven? In other words, how do we live in a way that brings the fragrance of heaven to earth? How do we live in a way that reflects the beauty of heaven even in the midst of a broken world today? Well, Paul, of course, would know the answer to that. And that answer would be, you, you, the, you learn the right way by looking to Jesus. You learn the right way by following Jesus. You know Jesus. You love Jesus. You surrender to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life so that the life of Christ is lived through you. You study the life of Christ. How did he show compassion? How did he show concern? How did he show grace, mercy, and love? You you study these things. But the reality is that the Philippian believers did not have the full Bible, the full canon of Scripture as we have it today. 
They, they didn't yet have the fullness of the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to which they could study all these words of Christ and all these actions. But they did have something unique. Paul begins to point them to the right way to live as he says in verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. If you want to follow the right way to live, the way to live like heavenly, heaven citizens while you live in this world, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, follow me. Please understand, this is not an arrogant statement of the Apostle Paul. Paul is just simply understanding. These people have not met Jesus personally. They haven't had conversation with Jesus like I have, but I met Jesus and I had fellowship with him. I have a relationship with him. My life's been changed. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I'm not perfect and I'm a flawed example, but here's what I am doing. I am following after Jesus. And so I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to focus on him and I'm going to live for him. And as I do, you just follow me. So what Paul's saying. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to put all my passion energy into focusing on him. And as I walk with him, you just follow me. We get a glimpse of why that's the case in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul is giving instruction to the church of Corinth. But as he does, Paul makes a little statement that I think gives us the picture of why Paul was such a great example. Now, to be clear, Paul was imperfect. He was a man just like you and I. In fact, he even would say, I'm a sinner and I'm the chief of sinners. But listen to this glimpse into Paul's priority and focus of his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what he says. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, listen to this statement, to be pleasing to him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Please hear that simple statement. If you could ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, tell me, what is it? What is your primary focus in life? How, how do you make the decisions that you make? How do you know the course that you take? What do you do when you're faced with temptation? Like, Paul, how do you do this? Here's what he would say. His primary ambition was to live a life that was pleasing to the one who gave his life for him. Was Paul perfect? No. But his focus and his ambition was on knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and pleasing him in all that he did. It's interesting to note that if you were to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 10, which we don't have time for all those verses this morning, but listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Verses two through nine, Paul goes through this list of things to abstain from and things to accept, things to reject and things to follow after. And then he sums it all up in verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, God is saying, listen, you, you want to live like, like heaven citizens in the midst of this fallen world? Please understand, I have given you my son to, to walk with and to love and to know, but I've also given you examples like the Apostle Paul. Join in following his example, learning what is pleasing to the Lord. But I want you to know something this morning. Maybe you'd say, but pastor, I, I hear it. I know, yeah, the Apostle Paul, he's the Apostle Paul. Of course, he's a great example. It's 2020. It's a long time since then. Where do, where do we look now? What, what encouragement do we have now? I want to remind you this morning, God's given you his word. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's given you the Holy Spirit. But friend, can I just say to you, he's also given us something else. He's given us one another. This next phrase that Paul says, it's like Paul's looking at the Philippian believers. It's like he's looking at us today and he's saying, look around you, brothers and sisters. I know it's a fallen world. I know it's hard. I know it's divided. I know that it's sin cursed. I know that all creation longs for this renewal that will come when Christ comes again. But I want you to know something. Look around you. You are not alone. Here's what he says. And observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Observe them. Let me ask you for just a moment. Take a moment and think in your life. Who is it in your life that gives you a glimpse of heaven through their humility and their grace and their love? Who is it in your life that you see the fruit of the Spirit in? You see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Who in your life is modeling Christ for you? Observe them, study them, 
Spend time with them. Walk with them. They are not perfect. Only Jesus is worthy of worship, praise, and adoration. But what I'm saying to you is that when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God adopts you into the family of God. We together become citizens of heaven. And as a result of that, he surrounds us with people who can encourage us and help us and hold us accountable and pray for us and bear one another's burdens and strengthen us and build us up to be the vessel that God would have you to be. There's a right way, but secondly, he tells us, guess what? There's a wrong way. Living like a citizen of heaven here in this world, there's a right way, and that right way is found as we know Jesus, of course, and we know his word, and we allow his life to be lived in and through us. But there's a wrong way. Paul alludes to that in verses 18 and 19 when he says, For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things." Paul brings us to a sobering reality that we must examine today. That sobering reality is this. Not everyone in the church is really a follower of Jesus. Not everyone who professes to have believed is really a child of God. Not everyone who practices religion really knows what it means to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That shouldn't surprise us, unfortunately. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, himself, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In fact, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, they're religious. In other words, they, they know the law. They do good things. They do a lot of good works. And based upon those things, they think they are accepted before God. They think they're in a right relationship with God because they're religious. But Jesus says, in that day, I'm going to look at them and say, I never knew you. There was no relationship. You might have had a logic about me. You might have had understanding about me. You may have been well-intentioned about me. But the reality is, there's not a relationship there. Jesus further illustrated that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus tells us literally that the kingdom of heaven, you'll see it in your scripture reading this week, the kingdom of heaven was like a sower that went out to sow seed and the seed began to grow roots and it grew up and there came up wheat that was authentic and that was real and it was bountiful and it was fruitful and there came up tares. It looked like the wheat. The farmer literally, he, he, couldn't look, he couldn't look at it and see, but here's the reality. When the time of harvest came, the only thing that stood standing was that of the wheat. Jesus gives a powerful depiction of the reality that even in our midst, even amongst us, there are many who can be religious and yet still be lost. When Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, he's speaking of a group of Jews. They were Judaizers. They professed to believe in Jesus, but they merely knew him as a leader and a historical figure. They did not follow Jesus and believe in him as Lord. They were religious, but they were lost. Paul looks and he says, I want you to examine yourself. Now, I realize in this morning, this morning, when you realize thinking about this wrong way, I'm gonna kind of break this down in some characteristics of the wrong way to live, okay? There's a danger in that, though, and the danger is that anytime you kind of get a negative list, our human nature tends to immediately begin to evaluate others and judge, okay? In fact, we see that sometimes when a message is being preached and our immediate thought goes to, Oh boy, so-and-so needs that. Oh, so-and-so should have been here for this. Oh, I'm going to have to let them hear this because this is for them. When the reality is God is calling us first to listen and examine our own hearts and lives. So I want to encourage you as we look at these characteristics to not judge others, but first and foremost, to examine your own life. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, literally, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. I think that's what God is bringing us to in these words. Four characteristics of the wrong way. Number one, I want you to consider their conduct. Their conduct. The Bible says it this way in verse 19. Literally, their God is their appetite. 
Their God is their appetite. Now remember, Paul is describing these people who profess to believe, but in reality, they were false believers. And Paul says, listen, if you want to know if you're a false believer, here's what you need to do. You need to examine your conduct. What do your actions in your life reveal about you? Here's what he says. Their God is their appetite. Or some translations say their God is their belly or their stomach. Now, I realize when we hear the word appetite in our culture, we jump to thinking about food. Amen? Right? Maybe you're sitting there right now and you're thinking like, Pastor Matthew, that is very distracting right now because all I can think about is lunch in the moment. You might be watching from home right now and you've already got something in the oven and you can smell it and this is just like tormenting you right now. All right, I don't know if that's the case or not. I hear the word appetite, I think about things that I enjoy. I think about the fact that in, I don't know, an hour or so, I'm gonna be going home and we're grilling steaks for Father's Day today. Hallelujah, right? <laughs> My, my, well, I rarely ask for a specific dessert. Rarely, rarely, rather, rarely. But I asked and my wife has delivered. She has made a fresh peach cobbler. Hallelujah, right? Like, I cannot wait, you know? Like, I might just surpass the steak and just, I don't know. Like, when I think appetite, that's what I think of. But when Paul says their God is their appetite, the appetite he's referring to is not the appetite of our stomach or the desire for food. He's describing the word appetite literally as the desires and the cravings of their flesh. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. He said, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Listen to this statement. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. In other words, a true believer lives to please Jesus, but a false believer lives to please self. A true believer lives in a way to bring glory and honor to God, to, to honor God because of our love and devotion to Jesus. But a false believer instead functions not on the basis of pleasing God, but on the basis of my flesh, on the basis of my desires, on the basis of what I want. Galatians chapter 5, 24 says it this way. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But the opposite of that is also true. Those who don't believe in Jesus, who don't belong to Jesus, instead of crucifying the flesh, they continually give in to it and they continue to follow their own passions and their own desires. And Paul says it this way. He didn't just say they give in to their appetite. He said, their God is their appetite. In other words, instead of truly worshiping God and seeking their own wants and their own desires, they prove that they're truly worshiping themselves. Now, most of us in our culture would never say that. In the church, we would never say we're worshiping ourselves. Like that would just be the worst thing in the world. We probably would never say that. However, many of us give in to the lies and temptations of the enemy and begin to justify in a way that usually demonstrates whether we're truly worshiping God or if we're worshiping ourselves. So often in our culture, someone will do something They'll make a course of action. They'll make a decision for their future, for their marriage, for their situation. And then they'll justify it with the statement. But God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. And in that moment, I would remind you, if you're a child of God, God wants you to be holy, set apart. God wants you to love him and live as the child of God he has declared you to be. And as you love God and as you walk with him, I'm not saying it's gonna be easy and I'm not saying you're gonna be a millionaire, but there is a sense of peace and there's a joy and there's a fulfillment, there's a contentment that comes when you are in a right relationship with God. And that in itself does bring about a happiness. But please understand, our goal is not our happiness. If you're a child of God, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And as a result of that, our goal is not to pursue our happiness, it's to pursue God's holiness. And as I pursue God's holiness, God does bring a joy and he brings fruit through my life. But the reality is this morning, if we use our happiness as a means for justifying our actions, we are doing the same thing. Our God is now our desires. And so I can do what I want because the goal ultimately is my happiness and not God's holiness. Second thing I want you to see in all their conduct, I want you to see their celebration. Now, it's hard to think of it this way, but notice what he says. He says... Their God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. You don't normally hear the words glory and shame together in the same sentence. 
The word glory here is a unique word. It's a word that was used to describe one's pride or pleasure that they've taken something. Uh, Even though we don't use this word in a similar way today, it was kind of used as a term of boasting in this context. For example, we might say that if you were in that culture, that someone gloried in the fact that their team won a championship. I would never do that here because Alabama wins so few, you know. But I mean, like, you glory in those accomplishments. You might glory in making the A on that exam. You might glory in making that accomplishment at work or getting that promotion. If you're in my household, we're extremely competitive, and you win the family board game, you're going to glory in that for a little bit, okay? Like, that's kind of the idea. The Bible says they glory in their shame, And what God is saying to us here is that in light of God's holiness, the very things they should have been ashamed of, instead they boasted of. The very things that should have brought them conviction and the very thing that should have brought them to a place of repentance, the very thing that should have called them to the place in light of God's holiness to realize this is a sin against God, this is wrong, I need to turn from this. Those very things they continued in and their willing continuance in those things showed that they were glorying in the very things that should have brought them shame. Well, that pastor, that, how does that happen today? Just a few illustrations. When the business person is proud of the deal they made, even though they know it was shady, they're glorying in their shame. When the student is proud that they got away with cheating because they finally got a good grade on the test, they're glorying in their shame. When the child is proud that they pulled one over on mom and dad, <laughs> happy Father's Day, men. When the unmarried couple justifies their immorality because of their feelings for one another, they're glorying in their shame. When the unfaithful spouse says, but, but this other situation makes me feel this, they're glorying in their shame. God knows when we glory in the very things that we should be ashamed of. I want to remind you, we might look a certain way on the outside, but God sees not as man sees, for God looks at the heart. That's right. In my eyes, we all look amazing, right? Like we're made in the image of God. But the reality is God sees the heart. and He knows where we're at and he knows where we stand. And it it brings us to a third reality. How could they glory in their shame? How could they be at that place? Please understand, when Paul says this, he's talking about the Judaizers. It's not that these guys were doing all these terrible, horrible things. These people were actually religious, They kept the law. They demanded that other people kept the law. But here's what they did. In the midst of their knowledge, in the midst of their keeping of the law, in the midst of their so-called self-righteousness, they became arrogant and they began to be proud. They had a knowledge that puffed them up. And so they said, oh, we're deeper. Oh, we know more. We've got a better gospel than the apostle Paul. And as a result of that, it brought them to a place where Paul says, listen, in the same way in your self-righteousness, you are glorying in your shame. John Philip says it so good. Here's what he said. He said, they set themselves up as religious teachers with a message more scriptural than Paul's. They saw themselves as zealous guardians of truth, as propagators of the true gospel. And Paul showed that their robe of religion, righteousness, and respectability was nothing better than a cobweb coat spread over self-indulgence and materialism. Even the self-righteous, Paul says they're glorying in their shame. Third, how do you get there? You get there through your concentration. Notice what they were focused on. Notice what they were concentrated on. He says in this statement, verse 19, who set their minds on earthly things. No wonder they thought everything was right. They were living not according to heaven, not according to God's holiness. They were living according to their own. They were focused on earthly things. Think of it this way. The mindset on earthly things is more concerned about self and not about others. The mindset on earthly things is focused on getting, not on giving. The mindset on earthly things is focused on putting down instead of building up. The mindset on earthly things is focused on getting even instead of turning the other cheek. The mindset on the flesh is focused on criticism and hatred instead of grace and love. The question then for us is this. What is your mind set on? 
What are you focused on? Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And notice finally what Paul says their conclusion is. And I gotta move this point quickly, but notice what he says in verse 18 and 19. I tell you, they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. They may look religious. They may know the law. They may have a lot of outward works. But God knows the heart. And he knows whether or not they're truly following Jesus as Lord. He knows. Their end is destruction. The word that was used there in the English is where we get our word perdition. By the way, it's the same exact word that was used of a man by the name of Judas, who was the son of perdition. The word literally means waste. An absolute, total ruin and waste is what their life comes to. I I pray this morning, when you consider this right way and this wrong way, that God uses that truth to assure you Yes, you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Yes, you are following the example that God has put before you. Yes, you are letting the life of Christ be lived through you as the Holy Spirit uh, leads you and guides you. I pray that it gives you that assurance because in that assurance, man, there is incredible and concern and where you repent of your sin, put your faith completely in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone and experience the joy and the peace that comes from knowing you have a relationship with God. But there's a second truth, and I'll say it quickly. I realize this morning the majority of the text has been spent on the first point. I promise we'll wrap up quickly, but I want you to see a second thing that our citizenship in heaven does. It influences how we walk, even in 2020. Yep. Even in times of COVID. Yep, it still influences how we walk. But secondly, our citizenship in heaven should influence how we wait. Notice what the scripture says in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is our home. That's where God is calling us to. That's what he's prepared for us. But here's the reality. We're not there yet. So what do we do in the meantime? The Bible says we wait. And we don't just wait. We wait with an eagerness. We wait with an anticipation. Why? Because Jesus promised he would come again. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses one and following, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But listen to what Jesus said. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again to receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna send the comfort of the Holy Spirit, but I'm gonna come again. No wonder in Acts chapter one, when Jesus had appeared to those 500 eyewitnesses at one time, there he is on the mountain. He's ascending into heaven and the disciples stand in amazement. And what do the angels say? The angels said, why do you stand here in astonishment? Why are you amazed? This same Jesus that's coming to heaven in this way, he's gonna come in the same way again. He's gonna return. That reality led those believers in that first century. They lived their life with an eager anticipation, a constant longing, a constant readiness, a constant watchfulness. Jesus could come at any time. I remember when I was a, when we were back in Christiansburg and my oldest two children were young. They're now 16 and 14 and getting taller than me. But I remember coming home from work and I remember specifically one year for our anniversary, Heather had asked for something really romantic. She asked for a screen door. Very practical gift, but we, that's what I did. We got the screen door, you know, and, and, and so the, the main door would be open and the screen door could be closed. And I remember, and it had a, had a glass kind of panel, I remember coming home and literally as I would close the door, ju- I mean, just about every day, Gracie and her little legs, man, she would run to that door and she didn't just wait at the door. I mean, like nose, snot on the glass, like she was like, Come play with me, Dad. Come hang out with me. I have missed you. And, and, and I cannot tell you as a father the joy that brought. When I would get out of, literally, when I would get out of the, my car and I would see my daughter like eagerly waiting for me to get there, like everything else in the world was ignored in that moment. You know what I mean? The Bible's telling us this phrase here to kind of say, listen, with that same longing, like we are to be looking forward to and anticipating that Jesus will come. The old writer said it this way. The old preacher said it this way. No man knows the time. Jesus could come at any time, so we must be ready all the time. It should affect our anticipation. We wait with great anticipation. But secondly, 
Don't miss this. We also wait with action. Now I realize, as we're getting, to wrap up, getting ready to wrap up our time together, some are sitting there thinking like, waiting, oh my goodness. Pastor, I'll do anything but wait. Oh, I hate to wait. Maybe you're sitting there thinking like, I have no patience at all. I, 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 maybe you just don't like the idea of waiting. Please understand the picture of waiting when the Bible speaks about eagerly waiting for a savior, this isn't the image of a man waiting in a bench at the mall for his wife to get done shopping, okay? This image of waiting is not the parent who's in their vehicle on their smartphone for two hours waiting for their child to finish ballet practice or sports practice, okay? It's not that kind of waiting, sitting here twiddling our thumbs, wasting time just to do something to occupy the time. When you think about waiting for the Lord's return, here's what the image that I believe God is trying to give and what I would ask you to envision. We have many ladies here today who have been a bride. You are a bride. You are married. You might have to think back a few days or a few years or a few decades. I don't know. But ladies, do you remember what it was like when you were engaged, the wedding date was set, and you begin to wait for that day. Now, now I have to confess, uh, I, I, th this idea and this image is very near and dear to my heart because on this day, 17 years ago, my wife and I said, I do. Today's our anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> and as, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to walk with many couples through premarital counseling and all that preparation. But here's the reality. Usually there's a proposal and there's a commitment and we're going to get married together. And there's a date that is set for the ceremony. And when the date is set, here's what they don't do. You know what? Let's just sit back and wait and the date will come to us. Now, some are a little more laid back than others. Some brides I've seen, every detail's got to be this way, and some brides are like, eh, we'll figure it out when we get there. But, but for the most part, a bride doesn't sit back and just do nothing. No, it's because they know that the, the wedding is coming. They know the ceremonies that take place. They know the celebration that's to occur. What are they doing? They're preparing and they're working. There's tasks to be accomplished. There's things to be prepared. There's rejoicings to happen at the, at the various gatherings. There's people to be invited. They know the ceremony is about to take place. And so they're spending that time, literally every moment up to, to make sure they're ready for that moment. What is the picture that God gives us? There's many pictures, but what is one of the primary pictures that God gives us to describe the relationship between Christ and the church? Is it not that of a bride and a groom? Is it not that picture of a husband and a wife? And the Bible tells us, Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going to heaven, I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And at the father's appointed time, guess what's gonna happen? The father's gonna look at the son and he's gonna say, son, go get your bride. And the Bible tells us that the trumpet of the Lord will sound, the eastern sky will split and all the believers will be raptured up to meet Jesus in the clouds. Notice what the scripture says. We wait, yes, but it's a waiting with action. What do we do in the meantime? We're working. We're preparing. There's a task to be accomplished. There are people to be invited because the groom's coming. We wait with action. And finally, we wait with absolute assurance. Paul sits in prison He's getting old. He's chained to a guard. He's already said in Philippians chapter 1, to live as Christ and to die is so much gain. He's looking at the humble state of his conditions in his body. And he's thinking about the moment that Jesus returns. And he says in verse 21, who in that moment, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. In other words, when Jesus returns and I'm called up to meet with him, this pain, 
this suffering, this humble body with all of its flaws, with all of its fragility, with all of its weaknesses, it's going to be a thing of the past. And in a moment, I will be transformed. In a moment, I will be given a glorified body. In a moment, I will be with Christ and I will be as he is. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. The twinkling of an eye. (laughs) How many times do you think you've even blinked since you've been in here? How fast can you blink? Pretty quickly. A twinkling of an eye can be even quicker than that. You know what Paul's point is? Paul's point is simply this. We don't know when the time is coming, but in the twinkling of an eye, in the drop of a hat, in the split of a second, Jesus is coming again. The question is simply this, are you ready? We live in a fallen world, but my prayer today is that we will live our life in such a way that it would be said of us what was said of Abraham many years ago in Hebrews 11. Here's what it says. By faith he lived as an, angel, as an alien or as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Here's the question. What are you looking for? And more importantly, who are you living for today? Let's bow our heads together. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the reminder of heaven and the promise of heaven to know that heaven can be our home and it is our home for all who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray today that if there's anyone here who does not know with certainty that heaven is their home, if there's anyone here today that is depending upon religion or their own righteousness, their own good works. If there's anyone that's depending upon that, I pray today, God, that you would convict them of their sin and that they would call upon Jesus to be their savior. Lord, you tell us in your word that if we believe in our heart that Jesus raised from the grave and if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And so God, I pray today that for any that are uncertain, that any have a moment of pause where they're looking and realizing those wrong ways are so evident within them. God, I pray today that today would be the day where they are forgiven. Today would be the day where they are delivered. Today would be the day where they become citizens of heaven. And God, I now pray for all of us by your grace who are already citizens of heaven. God, I pray that we would not waste the time that we have here on this earth. May we not just sit back and watch things unfold, but may we be faithful to walk with you and to be the light that you've called us to be. In the image of that bride preparing and getting things in order and making sure that she's ready and inviting others along. God, may we be a bride, the bride of Christ that's ready for you. That when you return, we won't be ashamed. That when you return, we'll be ready. I pray in Jesus' name. thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.